Hello, I'm Rob Forsyth. Welcome to Liberalism in Question. In this half-hour podcast series from the Centre for Independent Studies, we explore questions and challenges to liberalism today. My guest today is Rosalind Fuller, an author, columnist, and someone who believes that there's very little democracy in the world today. Normally, liberals believe in the value of liberal democracy, but Rosalind thinks there's probably no real democracy in the world. There are some better, some worse, but hardly any at all. Welcome, Rosalind. Thanks very much for having me. Why do you think there's so little democracy in the world today? I'm, I'm speaking to you from Australia, a liberal democracy, and you're in Ireland, a liberal democracy. Right. Well, I, th- I think why is there so little democracy in the world today has to do with how our modern government systems developed. Um, obviously, they developed against the backdrop of monarchy and rather more oppressive states. And we developed this idea of negative rights. How can we protect ourselves against someone or some power of authority over us? And we decided to do so using negative rights to say, well, we have a right to freedom or we have a right to free press and things like that. But what we didn't develop is an idea of more positive rights, having rights to participate or having the idea that the people, if you want, democracy means people power. So having the idea that the people as a collective would make those decisions for themselves and actually have the power to do so, not have something else in between intervening in that. So when we developed democracy, we kind of, our idea of modern democracy, we kind of did so by fits and starts, mixed it up with a whole lot of other things, um, and ended up with a sort of mishmash of ideas, some of which are liberal and some of which aren't necessarily even. What would a real democracy look like for you? Let me start with with the beginning. You've got something in mind that that you'd like to see. What is that? For me, democracy, it means people power. So it is the idea of people having power. So, for example, a referendum is probably the closest thing we have to a popular democratic mechanism today. People cast their votes and then that's what goes, a binding referendum, let's say. I mean, we have these in Ireland. They have them in Switzerland as well um, and in some other places as well. So people being able to say that's our destiny. We've all cast our vote. Um, There is a principle of equality in that. Everyone has an equal vote. That, to me, would be democracy, when people are able to exercise that power and there's nothing standing in their way. Uh, Rosalind Fuller, but could you run a government like that? Um, I understand big issues. Over here in Australia, we had a plebiscite, a kind of non-binding but, a fit, but morally compelling um, vote on the question of same-sex marriage. But you can't run a government by people, all the people deciding all the time, can you? It, it seems to be too many detailed decisions to be taken. Yeah, there's not that many like really big decisions to be taken because there's not that many major pieces of legislation that are passed. Um, We do, as I say, they have referendums in Switzerland once every quarter. We have referendums quite frequently here in Ireland as well. Historically, of course, the example um, that usually comes up and that I've looked into a lot myself is ancient Athens in ancient Greece. That was 2,500 years ago about. So a very, very long time ago. But they did have a society where they had numerous institutions that allowed people to exercise power directly. It was a lot of work, but they were able to run their government that way. Tell me more. How, how would it work in ancient Athens? How would, how would the government work? Who was the government? Even? Yeah, they, see, they didn't really have a government. This is really, really interesting. <laughs> um, so they had different institutions, if you want. Uh, one was called the Assembly, and that was where everyone, in this case, every adult male Athenian, um, could uh, turn up and speak for or against motions and vote on those motions. And this was supported by other institutions. Um, They had juries in courts, which were very, very large juries compared to the level of population. Um, And they would decide on cases, but they'd also decide on constitutional cases. 
Um, and they had another, the third one that's regarded as a major institution is the Council of 500, uh, which again, it was 500 people. They were selected randomly every year and they would put things on the agenda for the assembly, um, whereby that has to be understood quite loosely in the sense. Um, and they took care of a whole bunch of eclectic other duties as well. So those were really the three main institutions. And then they had various office holders, some of whom were elected, some of whom were chosen by lottery, but all of whom could be called before the assembly to have to answer for what they were doing. So this this was direct. There was no there was no executive in the government effectively. It's it's, it's the people themselves are making the decisions. Yes, the executive changed a lot. There were there were people who fulfilled executive functions, but they did so for very short periods of time and under the thumb, if you want, of the people. Today we have representative democracy, where we vote once every four or three years for people to represent us. What's your fundamental objection to that? Yeah, representative democracy is quite different. Um, uh, when we first founded modern nation states and we decided they should become democratic, these were, of course, much bigger than ancient Athens was. And there was this idea that you have to delegate people to go and make decisions for you, or, or perhaps not, perhaps to just convey what your constituency wants to the parliament. We haven't really clarified what a, what a representative is actually supposed to be doing. There's actually different theories about that. Yes. Um, but yeah, so that, that's an issue. Now, the issue with that is that it facilitates corruption and facilitates skewing. So if you look at elections, um, especially in first-past-the-post systems, they can be very inaccurate. So sometimes what you can even end up with is the party or candidate who lost the popular vote winning the election. Now, probably the most recent famous example of that is Donald Trump, who won the popular vote, uh, or sorry, he won the election, but lost the popular vote when he became president. But it can happen in all first past the post systems, um, and vote skewing happens in all electoral systems. Because of that, parties become really, really good at gaming that system, actually, um, and getting more seats with fewer votes. So the problem is they're not necessarily representing what people want at any one time. Even on a statistical level, quite apart from all of the other ways, they might just decide not to represent them or to uh, you know, do what their donors want or make a guess at it, but maybe be wrong about what that guess is. It's very hard for us to know today what people want in our society. Indeed. We don't have much clarity on that. Indeed. Let me push back with some questions. You, may, you, you, you will be familiar with Edmund Burke's famous statement about the, on the Corn Laws. He said that he owed his, his um, electors his judgment he wasn't their delegate, but he, he owed their judgment. And he actually judged against what they wanted. I think he appealed the court laws, lost his, I think he lost the next election, as a matter of fact. Now, is, is, I mean, that's Burke's view. It says that, that what, what we're owed by our representatives is their best judgment on our behalf, not just doing what we tell them to do. Now, yeah, so that's, right? that is, that's, that that's is the, the one. That's, that's another view. Yeah, no, that is. And that's something that's definitely one that gets cited at me a lot, um, is that particular quote. Yeah, okay, that was his view uh, to some extent. He also made a lot of other statements that kind of ameliorated that view. He did yep. say a lot of the time that he should be taking the interest of his constituents to heart. He did go on about this quite a lot. So he wasn't in favor of just saying, you know, the statement often makes him sound, I think, a little bit more autocratic than he was. It makes him sound like saying, well, I judge this to be best, so shut up, peasants. And, yeah, and, yeah. and, and, and obey me. He was a little bit more nuanced than that, I think, particular quote uh, portrays. Um, however, yes, that is one view that you're supposed to judge things, that you should not just do what your constituents want. Although also at that time, of course, he really didn't have a mechanism to know what his constituents yeah. wanted anyway. Well, so I mean, so he, it's not like he could have taken a poll even if he had wanted to. 
I mean, the, the point I think he was trying to make, whether rightly okay. or wrongly, was that he'd thought about the matter in, in a bigger picture than just the self-interest of the particular constituents. And he saw that repealing these laws would, in the long run, be better for the nation and for them, whereas they just wanted, understandably, to keep the protection, uh, keep, keep the prices artificially high. So isn't that an argument against you, that, that, that we need people, representative democracy enables people to make decisions that are in our best interest, but not the ones that we see at the first time? People are often blind to what's in their best interest, for example. People may be sometimes blind to what's in their best interests. I don't know if representatives have a unique ability to see, however, what's in people's best interests either. So you have this this issue where that's exactly what's under dispute. What is in your best interests, right? Um, So I guess if people, I don't think we'd be having this discussion. If people thought, oh yeah, it wasn't my best interests. You know, I mean, I'm totally happy. Like everything's been going great for the last 20 or 30 years, better off than ever before. I don't think we'd be having this conversation about democracy if that was what happened, what was happening. And it, it can work like that. Representative democracy can work like that. If representatives work very hard, if they do stay in contact with their constituents, if they do honestly consider what is in the best interest of people, then you can make a representative democracy function pretty well for a really long time. But the problem starts when people start having diverging ideas of what is in their best interests. And if people start saying, I really don't think that was in my best interest, actually. And five years later, I'm even more sure it's not in my best interest than I was before. And representatives keep saying, oh, no, it was. It was. It just was. And shut down that debate. I think I think then you start to see things diverging and you start to see an argument for having more direct democracy at that point. One of the fears about full direct democracy is, is major- what majoritarianism, that the majority will swamp the rights of minority. And in a liberal society, it's not just about, liberalism is more than just democracy, it's also about protection, freedom, human freedom. Would, would direct democracy imperil individual freedom? Yeah, that's a very, that's actually a very good question. Um, I guess it depends what freedoms we're talking about. I mean, this is all under dispute. Yeah. I mean, what is liberalism? <laughs> This is a really big question, right? I mean, this entire podcast is based on that question. (laughs) Yes. I mean, some people might say something is necessary to be liberal, like maybe, maybe uh, protection of property rights. Let's just say that's probably like the nub of the issue is how far would you protect property rights? Some other liberals, you know, there's libertarians as an extreme form of liberalism might say, I should do what I need to be able to do whatever I want, whenever I want to, right? Most liberals are to some extent less extreme than that. They say, no, there do have to be limitations. And now we just discuss what those limitations are. Democracy is basically the mechanism via which you try to figure that out. What are those limitations? What, what do we need? How do we need to limit rights in some ways in order to yeah. allow other rights to flourish? And that's what the law is as well. I mean, it's just continuously weighing different rights against other rights and trying to come to some kind of of a balance with democracy. Well, this is what the founding fathers were worried about. They exactly said that, and it was exactly related to property. They said, if everyone could vote, if we didn't have an electoral college and we didn't have you know, these special rules around senators that they had at the time, um, people would ha- do all kinds of horrendous things because there's more poor people than rich people and they definitely wouldn't respect our private property. And that's why we don't want to have a democracy it's, because you're, they're you're really speaking, recognized. You're speaking yeah. about the founding of the United States of America. Of the United States. Sorry, which, yes, which, no, 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 that's all right. Um, that's all right. Um, 
in effect, I, 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 you have writ, you have written that America is not a democracy; it, it's a republic, and yes. um, that's a yes. very different approach. And in yes. fact, you're just saying the founding fathers deliberately did not want democracy, for they feared the mob would um, denude them of their property. Yes, yes, exactly, because that that is a minority, and they're they're actually a small minority. They're kind of the eternal minority. You know, even if you go back to Tewe and Jane Athens, this is the minority people are often talking about is really, really rich people. So yeah, I, I do think very, very wealthy people would definitely probably find themselves a little bit more curtailed than they are today, for example. If, if there was some form of direct democracy. Yes, I think that's a given. One of the great anxieties, whether rightly or not wrongly, um, Trump and Brexit and as much wringing of hands about popularism, the mob, um, being wrapped up by demagogues and uh, false advertising and all that and so forth. That, that's often an argument against your idea of direct democracy, that frankly the people, put no find a point upon it, can't be trusted because they're easily manipulated by demagogues and so forth. Um, I know that's an argument for elitism, but what, what do you say in response to that, Rosalind Fuller? Yeah, it definitely is an argument for elitism, um, uh, or it's meant to be anyway. Yeah, I wrote a whole book about this, um, oh, right. basically where uh, the my last fucking defense of democracy. What was about this? In, your book is I, the I, defense I, of democracy. That's that's what yeah. your recent book. Yes, correct. Yeah, so I, I went into this in great detail precisely because I did see all of these arguments really got new force after these 2016 events, Trump's election and Brexit vote in the United Kingdom, yeah. that people are too irrational for democracy, they're too stupid for democracy, um, they don't know what's in their best interest, as you said. Like, the data really doesn't bear that out. There's a lot of pseudoscience ideas out there about this that actually themselves haven't really passed an academic rigorous debate. So one of them is this idea of filter bubbles. So the idea that we online just get into filter bubbles and we have our ideas continually reinforced and that's why there's polarization and therefore, you know, this wouldn't all work because people are, you know, they're so stupid they become entrapped in their own filter bubbles. However, this has been disproven. Like this was just a theory someone came up with that went around the world, but it was ultimately found not to be true by scientists. And to get to get back to what liberalism is, liberalism to me is connected very much with rationality and science. So this idea that we investigate things to see if they're actually true is to me kind of intimately connected with liberalism. However, uh, moving on, um, another thing that came up that was really, really popular at the time and had hundreds of academic citations was this theory that people change their votes based on shark attacks. And this really went based around on, the world. On what? Shark attacks? Shark attacks. Yes. Oh, yes, well, now, yes. now, you, now you're talking our language. We in Australia are ex experts on the shark attacks, <laughs> you probably yes. know. Actually, we, actually <laughs> yeah. had a, we had a very tragic one very recently in Sydney, first one in, in, uh, since the 1960s, very sad. But what, tell me about the shark attack theory of yeah. people's views. According to this view, then you've probably never had an election that wasn't affected by a shark attack. But anyhow, so the idea was that people people blame, it was based on uh, an election, the election from 1916, the American presidential election from 1916, where there was a series of shark attacks and two political scientists went back and analyzed some data. And in their view, the idea was that um, these shark attacks had been unfairly blamed on Woodrow Wilson by people in that area, and therefore his vote was somewhat diminished from what it should have been, according to their calculations. However, again, I mean, I looked into this and other people looked into this. It was 
completely disproven, right? I mean, they analyzed every shark attack uh, in America anyway, not in Australia to see if it could possibly affect elections. It hadn't, you know, but yet at the same, but this was put across everywhere. This idea, oh, people are so fickle. You know, there's a shark attack. They blame it on the politician, even though politicians aren't responsible for shark attacks. And, you know, they're very irrational. But when you looked and you dug into the data, you found out this actually wasn't this um, case. And there were a lot of other problems with that data as well. I've never so, heard that theory, oh, but <laughs> I, I've never heard the shark attack theory. I've heard other versions of it, which are, Okay. Yeah. You're right. Liberalism is based upon, it, as far as possible, evidence and rationality. Exactly. But we know that human beings, David Hume pointed this out against Locke, basically. Human beings are ruled by their passions. And often our reason is to, is to catching up with the passions. We're not, we're not as rational as, um, well, as the theory implies. And that's one of the concerns is that the, that the people are easily, if not shark attack, some other form of of um, whipping up their passions in ways that are very, uh, that that lead to bad decision-making. Yeah, okay, I would say a couple of things. One is, I agree, we're not not completely rational. Um, However, we also don't know everything. So, I mean, I think- Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, liberalism is, is, and science and rationalism are all very useful, but they're not very useful completely on their own. They can't be used divorced from reality. Um, so to base everything completely on rationalism also doesn't always lead us to correct answers. No, no, I, I, my my yeah. argument is I it's not, 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 yeah. not actually possible. We just don't know enough. We must make judgments. Exactly. And the judgments involve our passions and values as much as what we think are the fact, the, 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 what, what is the case rationally. And uh, I, 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 most issues, I think, are even are underdetermined. We don't have enough information to know what to do. Yes, but if we have, but if there is a, like, there is a couple of methods for dealing with this. One of them is a scientific method where we do try to confirm theories. Democracy is, as I think of it, kind of like the scientific method for politics. Um, We expose ideas to scrutiny, right? We expose ideas to scrutiny and we expose ideas to argument. This does depend on people making those arguments. Like democracy is not a, 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 a politics for the lazy. That's for sure. But it does achieve that. Unlike, let's just say, another form of, uh, you know, monarchy, perhaps, for example, where you would say, well, we make these decisions among a few people in the palace and then we just tell you what they were, um, or some other form of government like that. It is a government that has a lot of transparency and subjects itself to scrutiny because people can stand up and question what you're saying. My, my, guest, Which, my, my guest today is uh, Rosan Fuller. Um, I'm Rob Forsyth. This is a liberalism in question. We're discussing why democracy is not a form of government for the lazy. <laughs> that R- R- Rosalind, you're arguing for direct engagement by, by people in decision making, which means inf- being informed, taking the time to think about things properly, and some mechanism by which they are directly involved, rather than just handing it all over to my representatives who know who know what's best once every, every three or four years. Did it work in Athens? It went on for a really long time. It was like, I would say that the proper democratic period lasted 140 years, but most people would put it even further than that. Like a couple of hundred years, more than 200 years, probably. If you really, if you really kind of count all of the different phases that it went through. But yeah, it did work pretty well, actually. Um, Amazingly enough, even though at the time democracy was a really unpopular idea and most other people thought they were pretty much crazy. Has it worked? Is there anywhere in a... In more recent times, we've seen anything like the model that, that you'd like to see. Is there any evidence of it working today? Yeah, I think, like, for example, I live in Ireland. Our, our referendums are called by the government, so we can't initiate them ourselves. 
However, we do have quite a few referendums. And on, 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 what, on what sort of questions do you have referendums? All kinds of questions. We have a lot of referendums on European integration, for example. Um, we have uh, referendums on social questions. So we recently had one on abortion and we recently had one on same-sex marriage. Um, but, you know, all kinds of various questions. Um, anything that has to do with the constitution has to go through a referendum here. So if it's regulated by the constitution, there'll have to be a referendum to change it. Um, and then, you know, Switzerland as well, for example, Switzerland has citizen initiated um, referendums uh, in the sense that people can question uh, what their parliament is doing. Uh, and they have those about once a quarter. So they have, at the moment, they, they've had a lot more referendums in the last 10 years or 12 years than they had before that, but they usually have about three or four referendums every quarter at this point. Um, this this messing, I'm trying, maybe it's a vicious or a virtuous circle for, for, for more direct engagement the citizenry need to be more educated about what's going on and more interested in what's going on. I guess the problem with, which now, unless that happens, they'll not do it well. On the other hand, if, if it's, if it's governments just handed over to the, to the, uh, to the representatives, people have a reason not to, not to bother being that interested and involved because it's not my business. So you, you've got to kind of get this thing started. If you, You've got to educate the people because it's not for, democracy is not for the lazy. You keep saying, but what if people are lazy? They want to. Yeah, that's, that, 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 that's a great challenge to your theory. Yeah, I don't think I don't think that the problem we're having at the moment is people being uninterested in politics, yeah. especially in countries like the U.S. or U.K., which are pretty polarized in some sense. It's not really like the people are polarized, but their politics is polarized. Um, so most people aren't as far apart on the political spectrum as we think, but there's definitely a lot of interest in politics. Like, yes. because partly yeah. I think because of the rise of the internet is part of it, and part of it is dissatisfaction with how politics has been conducted over the last 30 to 40 years, as many people have felt inequality growing and their standards slipping. So if anything, at the moment, what we have is we have a lot of interest in politics. We have a lot of people debating politics all the time on social media and screaming at each other and getting really worked up, but we don't have anything that measures sentiment and that makes a decision point on that, you know? So what we have is this endless argument actually going on and actually people becoming more and more and more frustrated and more and more convinced that actually everyone's on their side, which may or may not be true, actually. It's often the case where you listen to your own people, your own, you, most social media is really an echo chamber, I believe. I'm hearing people who think what I think and, and not others. Yeah, that's not, that's not true of most people, according to research. So according to research, most people actually are less living in echo chambers online than they are offline. Because if right? you think about it, your, your friends are actually like more likely to agree with you offline than they that's are online. True. However, however, of those people, there is a certain group of people who you're seeing the most of, the kind of blue tick Twitter brigade, yes. um, who are responsible for most of the tweets. Yeah, they do live in echo chambers and they do retweet each other all the time. So there's a certain level that's however not representative of the general population. So, so what, what you think we must be doing is, is doing much more research on what people actually think and want? Well, I don't think you really have to do research. You can just ask them, which is actually a lot oh, a lot more efficient, really, than, than doing research. And it involves less second guessing because sometimes when people do research, they kind of ask people proxy questions or they ask them, what's your opinion? And what's your opinion um, doesn't really measure how strongly you feel about something. And uh -huh. it doesn't really feel like if you'd really take action. So sometimes if you say to people, you know, what's your opinion on something? Like, what's your opinion on immigration? Do you think there's too many immigrants? People would say, oh yeah, yeah, there is, right? But yep. if you said, 
okay, um, we're going to deport a bunch of people. They might say, oh, no, I, just, I didn't say that. I mean, I, I just said maybe there's too much, you know, it was, it was just an opinion. I didn't, I didn't consider mm-hmm. the actions based on that opinion. And so I think, I think with making decisions, as I said, like, you know, with referendums or making other decisions, you're asking people to say, we are committed to doing this now. I'm going to oh, live with the consequences of that, which is more than just, you know, an opinion, which people often are, talking off the top of their head or they don't actually think someone's going to do it. So. You know, I, I take your point. In fact, it's easier to ask opinions and not think about the practicalities or consequences of decisions and actions. You're saying to make democracy work better, people need to know more and have a more direct say in what's going to go on. Yeah, I think people, like, I think, I don't think, again, I don't think it's, there's really that much of a lack of information. If anything, there's a lack of structure. So when you think about information, you have to organize it in a structure and, you know, tidbits flying around on social media, you know, they're kind of just tidbits. You don't start saying, well, if we do A, we can't do B, you know, and and start organizing that. And in a way, political parties have been very remiss in this because they used to organize information a lot better than they do today, I would say. Um, They used to create much more cohesive platforms that they used to talk to people about in much greater detail. Um, now it's a lot of sound bites, and that gives it this really uncohesive, uh, disorganized sense. Of, and I think that is bad for information. You know, there might be a lot of information, but it isn't in a sense arranged in a sensible manner. For, for direct democracy to work, you've got to trust some people to to run it in a way that really does enable it to work and not subvert it. You need some very honest officials. Well, that's kind of that's why they had officials rotate a lot in Athens. And, you know, some people have done this today, like the Five Star Movement. They've stopped it now, but they used to want to have officials rotate, or elected members, I should say, rotate. So that rotation principle of having a lot of people involved, like compared to their population, how many officials were in Athens? Like, I don't know. They estimated, Aristotle, I think it was, estimated that about a quarter, or maybe it's just based on his figures, but about a quarter of people were engaged in government in some way, shape, or form every wow. day. So yeah, like it was very, so it was hard to keep a secret, right? So it was really hard. I mean, there were lots of accusations of corruption, don't get me wrong, but it's very hard to keep a secret and you don't have to have that kind of official, trusting officials as you have today. I'm kind of like an antitrust person um, because that's always like the weak point for corruption. So whenever you're saying, oh, we have to trust this person, someone else is saying, I have to describe that person. <laughs> oh, I see. One, one of the great challenges that I see in your, in your proposal is that Athens was, was a city, a polis. The Latin, yes. the Greek word, and people were citizens of the city. How how, how big was it, by the way? Uh, there, I think, about three hundred thousand people. Okay. There were about 30,000 30, to forty thousand adult male citizens. Yes, because there was only. Yep, yeah. I'm speaking from a country with twenty four million. Yeah, I don't. I do what Ireland's got. Uh, United States much larger. How can you possibly run? How could you possibly run that when you're not got just all citizens of the one city, but many, many towns, cities? backwards, country, uh, it's, isn't the sheer scale of modern nations? I mean, you've got to have a, a intervening institutions like representative democracy rather than direct democracy. Well, it obviously hasn't slowed us down on the referendum front. Um, I, um, well, this is exactly the issue, right? So if you look mm-hmm. at like philosophers like Rousseau, they would say, you know, we couldn't have a democracy now because how where would you fit all the people in a way? You know, we couldn't have a direct democracy today. Um, so this is obviously something that people have thought of time and time and time again, that it's not feasible for such a large state to have people meet face to face. And clearly it's still not feasible for that. However, what has changed is of course, we have telecommunication today. 
So that started with television, which allowed one-way communication, which uh, meant, well, now you can communicate outwardly very, very easily. Um, and now we have the internet, which enables two-way communication. So we can communicate to each other, between each other, peer to peer, in a way that wasn't, definitely wasn't feasible in Rousseau's time and wasn't feasible in Athenian times either. So this has created the big question and is kind of the reason for my interest resurging in direct democracy. Um, is that things are practical today that weren't practical before. It's not, this isn't the barrier anymore, the communication barrier. Wow. So you, th you think it could actually work in a, in, a, in a large nation state? Yeah, I think I definitely start, like myself, I definitely start slowly. I think, you know, everything has to kind of cross the intervening space. You know, in, even in ancient Athens, they didn't just go, oh, democracy from one day to the next. They actually had a, a, a series of reforms that took a very long time to complete. Um, and I think it's important to proceed slowly, always and ask yourself, is this achieving what I want it to achieve? Is this working? I think you can start by having more referendums, for example. Referendums are great because those are the big questions, but they do set the circumstances for all of the other questions that come at a lower hierarchy of norms. Um, and you could have something like participatory budgeting, which allows people to make decisions on budgeting in their area, which is something that's quite practical um, and quite easy for people to understand and also has the added um, advantage what, that it informs people about what the budget is in their in their. What's, what's participatory budgeting? Yeah, that's basically where people, it was developed in Brazil, and basically it's where people decide on how some portion of the budget in their local area, or it could be bigger than a local area, it could also be a nation, is, is spent. So let's say you live in a local area. I mean, do you want a swimming pool or do you want something else? Or is it more of a road issue that you're having? Or do you want to put in the electricity or the broadband in somewhere, you know? So rather than just uh, saying, this is what we did, you're involving people in those decisions and it gives them the chance to learn more about how much things cost and what goes into making those decisions is there some like a necessary bureaucracy that we can cut down somewhere? Like these are really interesting questions, but with participatory budgeting, you have to make it important enough that people want to keep participating. It can't just be minor things that people lose interest in, you know? Yes, and then we've got a phrase in, in Australia called nimbyism, not in my right. backyard, right. Where, pe where people vote locally against others. Uh, I, is in a danger of uh, direct democracy, in fact, encouraging a kind of selfishness of those who've got nimbyism writ large. I've got this, I'm going to keep it. Yeah, I think this is interesting because often with, with when you're talking about democracy, people say, oh, but this problem or that problem would occur. Yeah, but you have to deal with those problems. You can't just keep kicking them down the road. So if you have, let's just say nimbyism, right? So yeah. no one wants a nuclear, let's just go with a nuclear power plant as a big one. Right? No one wants a nuclear power plant located next to them, right? Okay, so you have to ask yourself, either we do have to put it somewhere, maybe we give those people a payoff in return for taking it, or we say, maybe we don't want nuclear energy. Like you have to say, fine, there's going to be a cost of that. Either everyone says, I don't want it, I don't want it either, you don't want it either, no one wants it, fine, we're building windmills instead, and we accept that that may be more expensive. Or you might say, fine, uh, this territory will take it, and for that they want some other advantage, however. You know, and that that's kind of what democracy is, not just like <coughs> imposing it on some unfortunate people who are always the weakest members of society as well, yes. you know, into the bargain. Yes. Rosalind Fuller, does there need to be a, a unity amongst people for this, for your proposal to work? I'm thinking... In ancient Athens, they were they were they were members of the of the city, where you have distinct racial or class divisions, ethnic divisions. Some countries are very divided um, amongst and and often fearful of each other. 
I, I, I can see I see a, a danger in that situation of your direct democracy. That the the, the, uh, the most the, the most numerous ethnic religious group can vote things which can can can, can uh, disadvantage or even worse to the minorities. Yeah. Okay. And, yeah. No. There's a bunch of things in there. So I'm um, to start with. I'm not like advocating an end to all laws or no, you know, no, an not. end to our constitutional courts or things like that. So people do have protections, right, under yeah. our laws as they stand. I'm not advocating getting rid of those. I'm advocating, you know, starting to move along a relatively conservative path to more democracy. Um, but there are other things we can do as well. Like there is an idea called cumulative voting, <laughs> which was, I don't know if it was developed, but it was definitely propagated by a lady called Lani Gunier in the United States. Um, and that means giving, saying, for example, it's kind of a different voting system, but it preserves the equality of the vote. You could say, we're going to vote on 10 issues and everybody has 10 votes. And therefore you can put more votes on one issue if it's more important to you. And she saw this as a way of protecting minorities because it allowed them to place more votes on the issues that were more important to them. Yes, yes, to prevent yes. them from being, okay. So that's a couple of things you could do. Um, apart from that, I do however think that at some point, yes, you do have to ask yourself, are you one country or are you more than one country? And again, this is an issue that has been you know, on the back burner for a long time. It's just, it's not something that has been dealt with effectively or as effectively as maybe it should have been in a lot of states, you know, like Australia or like Canada or like the United States. Well, again, more, we have I'm thinking of places, I mean, that, that, that we're, we're relatively, you know, I'm thinking if there are some Asian countries where there are very strong ethnic minorities and the governments are quite authoritarian, well, authoritarian in order to make keep people from, keep the people from attacking each other or, or, or disadvantaging each other. There's a sense okay. of anxiety that if direct democracy is allowed to happen, then you'll get ethnic violence and strife in a way you'd, I know, I mean, Ireland's had it too, I know. Yeah. And we've seen, <laughs> and we've seen terrible results in places like Rwanda last century. Um, I dare not raise a Nazi issue, but there's something about when, when anti-Semitism is allowed to, to really flourish, people very quickly do, can do terrible things. But when racism can flourish, terrible things can be done in the name of the majority. I guess. Yeah, I don't know if the, I don't know if the Nazis were really, you know, like they they definitely weren't acting like in the sense of like we are a democracy and therefore we're going to. No, I understand that. No, I, I was more thinking um, of popular movements which which encourage immoral behaviour. Like nothing's any guarantee, right? Um, yeah. Let's let's admit that. Um, at the same time, it is harder to get a majority to do these. Things. It's not impossible, but it is harder because at the moment, like if you have a more authoritarian government or if you have a government like the Nazis, they can actually, through their fascist methods that actually scare the living daylights out of a lot of people, get away with doing quite a lot with a relatively low level of support. Like the Nazis never got 50% of support. Yeah. Um, so I think, although it's not impossible, for sure, that you would could have that in a democracy. Like, as I say, there's just no guarantees of this kind of thing. It's, however, even more likely that you would end up with an issue like that under a more authoritarian government because they control the army usually, they control the police, so they can do this to you any day of the week, actually. Um, so I would, if I wanted to be safe, I'd probably feel a little bit safer under a democracy than under an authoritarian government, although this is getting into all kinds of other factors that affect yeah, us yeah. as well, the society you, you live in as well. Our time is coming, unfortunately, to an end, but let me, let me I've been throwing up these... Um, throwing balls at you to hit <laughs> back in, in objections. But can I just flip at the end? What's the main what's the main reason why we should take much more seriously direct democracy, which I don't think has 
had been taken very seriously and why are you so passionate about it? What, what's at stake here, Rosalind yeah. Fuller? I feel that during my lifetime, I've seen definitely a rise of elitism and a rise of very severe inequality um, to the point where, you know, the, the difference in Western countries, I'm mainly talking about Western countries, that's where I live and that's what I know. Um, the difference between the poorest and the richest has gotten much larger during my lifetime. That's a very, and what we see now is people openly making the argument that, as you said, you know, people are too stupid, people are too rational, too irrational. A golden elite should make these decisions for them uh, rather than having democracy. So I feel like there's a real movement to make less democracy actually than we have enjoyed. There's a growing disrespect of equality that each person is inherently equal, which I do feel is a really important part of the enlightenment and kind of also the liberal uh, mindset as well. And I feel like that is in grave danger, but I feel like the control that the very, very wealthy, and to some extent you could call them the cultural elite exercise in our society has gotten to the point where I really don't think anything less will stop them at this point. All poor people have is their numbers. And that's why democracy is such an important thing for them to be able to participate and not to become more vulnerable and more downtrodden than they already are. Rosalind Fuller, thank you very much. I'm speaking, I've been speaking to Rosalind Fuller, the author of Beasts and Gods, how democracy changed its meaning and lost its purpose, and more recently, in defence of democracy, arguing for much more increased, what's, as it were, direct democracy as a way of overcoming elitism. Although, as she says, it's not for the lazy. We've got to earn our for our freedoms and 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 uh, our rights. Rosalind Fuller, thank you so much for joining joining us from Ireland. It's been great talking Thanks with very you. Much. Yeah, great. Thank you very much for having me. This has been another podcast from the Centre for Independent Studies. For decades, the CIS has been an independent voice working to deliver evidence-based policy within a classical liberal framework. We rely solely on the generosity of people like you for donations to advance our cause. Head to cis.org.au to see how you can get involved. I'm Rob Forsyth. Thank you for listening.